Welcome to week five of EW's Binge of Harry Potter. I am Mark Snedeker. And I'm Molly Smith. And today, we're getting the gang back together. We're calling the order. We're going to a house that you can't see, but we can. Order the Phoenix. Welcome. Book five, Over the Hump. Molly, we're over the hump. We're it's halfway crazy. done. It's crazy. We've come a really long way, but we have a long way to go, too. Yeah. You know what? But all these Hogwarts students are maturing. They're learning. Everyone's growing up, and um, Order of the Phoenix is all about angst. I don't want to say hormones, because that's book six, but Order of the Phoenix is defined by most people in the Harry Potter fandom as Harry's yelling book. <laughs> it's really true. You made a joke earlier, Mark, about how many all caps there are in the book and it's true just like scrolling through you can just see yelling after yelling after yelling through these all caps yeah i mean truly i wonder if jk rowling broke her caps lock writing this book (laughs) so harry potter and the order of the phoenix chronicles harry's fifth year we're all growing up and it's book five the problem is voldemort's back and nobody seems to believe harry except a core few but they are not enough to Drown out the sound of the Daily Prophet, the Ministry of Magic, people like Seamus Finnegan's mom, all sorts of people come crashing down on Harry, and he becomes a pariah. So book five is all about him trying to not only turn people's minds around, but also turn himself around, because he's starting to fear that he is also becoming bad like Voldemort. It's kind of a chicken and egg situation, but um, he's having dreams, seeing himself as Voldemort. And it's really getting to him. And you can't blame him. I will say his big mental breakdown in this book is feeling like he's growing bad. He's growing evil. Like it's coming out of him. Um, He, of course, doesn't realize at the time what his connection to Voldemort really means and really is. But at the moment, all these things are just crashing down on him and he can't handle it. And so that's why Episode 5, Order of the Phoenix, we are going through Harry Potter's 10 biggest all caps freakouts. His angsty moments, his temper tantrums, yelling at Ron and Hermione, yelling at Dumbledore, all sorts of all caps moments from Harry. And it's also not just him yelling. There's just a lot of emotional stuff all around, you know, with him trying to figure out if he's good or bad and like dealing with some love life drama as well. And we also have a very special guest today. Very special. So excited to have Imelda Staunton on the podcast, who played, of course, none other than Professor Umbridge. I think this is truly the best interview we will do, have done, will ever do. It's over, Mark. We've done it. it. Professor Umbridge truly is terrifying, so stick around. But right now, let's dive into the top 10 all caps freakouts of Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix. Number 10 brings us to Harry at the Dursleys. And he wasn't at the Dursleys in Goblet of Fire um, in the movie. But here, that's where it all kind of kicks off. And Dudley's teasing Harry about the nightmares he's been having, about Cedric's death. I mean, that's a very legit reason to have some nightmares. And Harry kind of loses it, goes off on Dudley, and then some Dementors come in. Specifically in Book 5 and this movie in particular, Dudley is worse than he's ever been. I don't know why he's so cruel. Supposedly, this is when he's at his, like, fattest, like, widest and girthiest and tallest, even though that's not very tall. And his wardrobe is his worst, I think. Yeah. It's he, like he's trying to be cool, but he's so not cool at all. Right. It's, it's terrible. It's like he saw Space Jam once and then bought all the jerseys <laughs> he could ever own. And he taunts Harry about some real intense stuff, which 
I don't even think is that fair because, you know, he, he makes a joke like, oh, you don't have parents, do you? Like, that just seems to be such a crazy thing for Dudley to say. And then again, if we're going to talk about Harry being angsty this book, why not Dudley? Why can't Dudley be lashing out in a way that Harry is? So Harry gets so riled up about Dudley making fun of him that he actually pulls out his wand. And this is a big move because Harry knows he can't do magic. Dudley knows he's not allowed to do magic, although he still looks a little terrified because he knows Harry can't do it. And he's wondering, are you are you going to do this? But he chooses the wrong time, Harry, because just then a Dementor comes swinging down, a couple of them actually, and attack them. Little Whinging uh, and Surrey, they get attacked by Dementors. And Harry luckily fends them off because he's now a Patronus pro. Um, but Dudley is shook. And you know who else is shook, Molly? The Ministry. Mrs. Arabella Fig, who was briefly alluded to at the end of book four. A lot of people forget that. But turns out Harry's kooky old neighbor across the street is a witch. Yeah, and she's part of the old crowd. The illusion there um, when Dumbledore's talking about getting the old gang back together for Order of the Phoenix. So who is Mrs. Fig, Molly? Well, she has been assigned by Dumbledore to look after Harry following Voldemort's return. Harry doesn't realize that she's a squib, uh, but she is. And she's kind of, I think, an underrated hero. She is. Well, it's interesting. So you said she's a squib. I think that's fascinating that Dumbledore decided, you know what? Somebody's got to protect Harry. <laughs> Let's make it the one person who couldn't do magic if Voldemort showed up. But she's there to keep a watchful eye, really. And she's really good at that. And she even goes after another character for not keeping a watchful eye. But what is she? Like, Like is she a life alert? Like, what would she do? Would she call somebody <laughs> else to say, hey, Voldemort's here. Somebody Help, come quick. a Dementor has attacked and I can't get up. Right. What would she do? Show a picture of her cat? That's true. Maybe the Dementor would fall asleep. <laughs> but yeah, so, you know... It is a big reveal, and I love it when um, Mrs. Fig reveals herself to be a witch or a squib. I also love that, you know, throughout Harry's childhood, she always made sure not to make it seem like he enjoyed his time too much over at her place, which I think is a little rude. Like, you know, you could you could have made his life a little easier. Maybe she just doesn't think Harry's a good enough liar. Yeah, she must not have. But clearly she disagrees with what the Dursleys were doing to him. So mm-hmm. at least she's a good person there. Anyway, supposedly the Dementors came because Mrs. Fig was not on duty, but Mundungus Fletcher was, another member of the Order of the Phoenix. But people Uh, aren't too fond of him. How do I even start talking about Mundungus Fletcher? He's one of these weird characters that frequently pops up throughout all the books, and yet we really don't know anything about him. We don't like him. He's kind of like the only criminal in the book who really didn't get into Azkaban. Essentially, he's a half-blood. He is loyal to Dumbledore, who got him out of some trouble, although we don't know what. Now he stays loyal, and yet is still a criminal. It's always like stolen goods, and right during you know the Dementor attack, he was off selling stolen cauldrons or buying them. Anyway, Mundungus, you know, he abandoned his post, and yet he's still loyal, so he's, he's got that kind of uh, dichotomy there. But I like him a lot because he represents cowardice in the series. He never kills anybody. He just flees a lot. And it shows that, you know, if you look at Harry and Ron and Hermione, the epitome of bravery, here's a guy who is still doing good and he is everything bravery isn't. So it just shows there's a whole spectrum of people who can be heroes. And he is essentially a hero until he kind of F's up big in book seven, but we'll talk about that later. Yeah, well, that's so much what this book is about, is the light and the dark. And that's something that Harry hears from Sirius later on. You know, it's not so Mm -hmm. 
black and white. You're not good or bad. There are different levels to that. That is absolutely the core of book five is light and dark is in everybody. And it's up to you to figure out how much you let it define you. One last thing about this first freak out. It's a moment that's not in the movie, which I really hate because I think it's such a beautiful moment in the book. When Harry brings Dudley, who has been demented, back into the house and he's getting yelled at and trying to explain he didn't do anything. It's Petunia who actually starts talking about Dementors. Harry is shocked because she doesn't even say Lily's name regularly. And here she says the word Dementors. It just blows Harry's mind. It's the first time she really talks about what happened and what she knows about the wizarding world. And Harry and Petunia share a moment. And it's just, I thought that was a breathtaking moment in the book. So sad to see that. That's really interesting. Sad to see that go. But I feel like now is a good time to point out that Order of the Phoenix is the longest book of the series. Yeah. And longest podcast. Yeah. So we should probably get moving. Yeah. So Harry's expelled. He has all this dread. He is mad that Dumbledore is having him followed. And that brings us to freak out number nine. Harry arriving at Grim Old Place and confronting Ron and Hermione and it's <laughs> it's really not a happy reunion like it has been in the past. It's really upsetting to me to see the main trio fight. In everyone's defense, Ron and Hermione were instructed by Dumbledore not to say anything to Harry, not to give him any information. Um and in Harry's defense, you know, what is that like to be on the other side of things? It's Dump- so isolating. So isolating. His and especially in the wake of Cedric Diggory's death. I mean, that's when that's like the one of the major things that he's experienced because of course the death of his parents was huge but he wasn't conscious to live through that you know he was just a little kid but this is something where he's a young adult and he's experiencing it and he's having a lot of feelings and it's like nobody's there for him in this really traumatic time in his life right all because his teacher was like hey guys don't talk to him (laughs) so harry is really upset at ron and hermione this is one of his biggest freakouts in the book right at the beginning and i think by the time we all got to this in the book we all said What is happening in this book? (laughs) Yeah, it didn't take long to realize this is like the angsty book. Yeah. That anger continues when Harry meets the Order, which is a group of, I guess you could just call them an assembly of heroes. Yeah. You know, assembled by Dumbledore and other such heroes throughout the book and throughout the series. They fought Voldemort in the first Wizarding War, and now they're back doing it again. But Harry gets upset with them because they are also keeping things from him. Molly Weasley says, you know, how many times does she say, oh, no, he's just a boy. Don't tell him he's just a boy. Even though Sirius deems him worthy and probably, you know, I think Lupin does as well. Mr. Weasley to an extent. But Molly doesn't. And Harry doesn't want to hear he's just a boy anymore because he's not. He is young. He is just a boy. But he's not just any boy. And in retrospect, you see that if he had known certain things, maybe things would have ended a different way. Yeah, because he, but you know what? He also is headstrong. He's very stubborn, very irrational, does things immediately, very spontaneous. So Molly probably does know better. And you need that maternal instinct pushing you away. But I always, whenever I watch Deathly Hallows Part 2, I always think about this scene in Order of the Phoenix because Molly says, no, he's just a boy, don't tell him. But in Deathly Hallows Part 2, when Harry asks Ollivander, tell me about the Deathly Hallows, Ollivander could have very easily said, oh, you're just a boy. I I shouldn't tell you that. You're 17. It it just shows how far he's come that Ollivander, like, yep, this kid's going to save the world. Whereas Molly right now, even though she might believe that, she is is trying to protect him. I think that's part of it. But I think with Molly being the mother of his best friend, she definitely treats Harry almost like a son of her own. And Ollivander, I kind of think of as being like myself around kids. Like, I don't have kids. I don't know how to act around kids. You know, I think that's part of it, too. 
Yeah, maybe. Yeah, it's just like the protection is gone, you know. Mm-hmm. And I, I like that Molly always gives protection, much like Lily. The only other reason Harry gets mad at Ron and Hermione is because, awkward, they're prefects, and he didn't make it. Um, it's a big shock that Ron got it. Mrs. Weasley is over the moon. <laughs> yeah. And Harry is actually truly happy for them. This is so beautifully written in the book. He's so happy for them, especially Ron, because Ron never gets the glory. But at the same time, no matter how happy you are, you, you can't help but wish you you kind of got it too. Especially, you know, when he goes to Hogwarts, he sits with Neville and Luna and Ginny because he can't sit with Ron and Hermione in the prefect car. Anyway, so that's the core of his anger so far at Ron and Hermione. Molly, I think um, we should probably talk a little bit about where they are. Where they're meeting is at number 12 Grimald Place, which is where House of Black resided. Yeah. It's Sirius's house that he's lending to the Order, basically, so they can meet there. Yeah, so Grimald Place, it's a secret safe house. Um, literally every security measure known to wizard kind has been put on it. It's my favorite place they go in Deathly Hallows. And here it's such a good safe haven for everyone. And it's like decorated in house elf heads. And there's a portrait of Walburga Black, who hated purebloods so much that... She not only put a permanent sticking charm to her, like, hateful portrait, her hatred continues 10 years after she's dead. Grimmauld Place is also Sirius's ancestral home, belonging to the noble and most ancient house of Black. Mm-hmm. And speaking of, Mark, you've been the game master up until now, but <sighs> things are about to take a little turn. Oh, my God. Uh, when we go into House of Black, there is a family tapestry, and you get to sort of see Sirius's history. And I should point out, by the way, there are... An- a number of Siriuses in the family. Sirii. Sirii. There's lots of names that are repeated, lots of connections on sort of multiple levels because yeah. it's a pure blood family. And there's, um, I guess, a lot of inbreeding. Ugh, a gross. lot of Ugh. inbreeding. Ugh. Anyways. There are, there are 28 pure blood families that by the 1930s are still pure blood. Um, technically 29 if you include the Potters, but they were excluded. Mm-hmm. But this list was like uh, not like super legit. Yeah, but the, they're called the Sacred Twenty Eight. It's everybody, you know, Crab, Flint, Weasley, Lestrange, Longbottom, Lupin, McMillan, my boy Ernie, and you know Malfoy, Potter, Pruitt. Mm-hmm. Um, although you know, again, not Potter because Harry's grandpa got uh, pushed out because he married. He married outside of the inbreeding. Mm-hmm. Anyway, Molly, House of Black, t- tell me all about it. Well, so as we said, it's a pureblood family. And Sirius, uh, he wasn't really like his family members. He was the only one sorted into Gryffindor over Slytherin. And he ran away at age 16, and his mother burnt his face on the family tapestry and disowned him. That is fun. Very, very fun. And while Sirius is not super connected to his family, he's kind of rejected them. Today, we're going to play a little game of family history where (sighs) I tell you a member of House of Black, and you tell me how they're related to Sirius. Oh, my God. Are you ready? (laughs) Oh, my God. Okay. First, we're going to start with Orion Black. Orion Black. And I should point out before we go ahead, these are all people who are fairly close to Sirius. We're not going too far back. Okay. Good to know. In his family tree. Good to know about that. I say Orion Black is Sirius's great uncle. No. You want to guess one more time? No. Dad. Oh, great. All right. I should have gone easy. Okay, great. Next one. All right. This one, though, I'm confident. Bellatrix Lestrange. Oh, cousin. Yes. Straight up cousin. Ding, ding, ding. Next is Regulus Black. Brother. Mm-hmm. Who's going to be very important later on. Yeah. Then we have Irma Black. Irma? Maiden name is Crab. Ooh, 
Um, um, grandmother. Yes. Yes. I remember reading about that. Cygnus Black, the third. Cygnus Black. Isn't that like health insurance or something? Um, Cygna. Uncle. Yeah. <laughs> I say uncle. Yes. Yeah. Uncle to Sirius. Cool. Walburga Black, who you brought Mom, up earlier. Mm-hmm, it's mm-hmm. that hateful racist mother. Scary mother, for sure. Narcissa Malfoy. Uh, I, I want to say aunt. No. No? No. Think about who Narcissa is also related to. Well, she's related to um, Bellatrix, mm-hmm. right? And so if Sirius is Bellatrix's cousin... Oh, and Narcissa is the sister of Bellatrix, isn't she? Yeah. Yes. Also a cousin. Right, right, right. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Cool. A few more. Um, Druella Black. Like great-grandma? No. Niece? No. <laughs> I can't give all my relations. <laughs> so aunt to Sirius. Okay, cool. Mm-hmm. And then we have Pollux Black. Grandfather. Great-grandfather. Yeah. Grandfather? No, grandfather. Just kidding. Yeah, go Pretend with your instincts. Yeah. Instinct. Man's intuition. Last one is Andromeda Tonks. Oh, I should know this one. Um, oh, God. Andromeda Tonks married. Is that his sister? No, but also related to Bellatrix and Narcissa. She's another cousin. His Ugh. favorite cousin, in fact, and she was also disowned from the family for marrying outside of purebloods. Oh, damn. Mm-hmm. So All there right. you have it. Now I know. A little family history. A little Ancestry.com Potter edition. <laughs> totally. <laughs> All right, I love it. All right, let's get out of this grim old place and uh, move on to a better place uh, where Harry has freakout number eight, which is his freakout at the Ministry of Magic when he is on trial. So he's been expelled, and as such, the Ministry is so corrupt and so disbelieving of everything that has to do with Harry Potter that they're holding a full court hearing to get him expelled for underage magic. He is in front of the... Wizengamot? A little history about what the Wizengamot is... It is inspired by old medieval councils. In the Harry Potter world, it predates the ministry by a solid 150 years. You know, these are trials that are in dungeons. The average age is like late 80s. There's a chief warlock who's sort of like the Supreme Court Chief Justice. It is Dumbledore, except for this book. It brings up an interesting idea, um, you know, this wizengamit, because there have to be wizard lawyers, right? Oh, for sure. Dumbledore is the third party representing Harry now, but like there has to be some way you go from Hogwarts to litigation. Yeah. How do you do that? Where do you go? Is there a Harvard, even... Harvard, uh, Harvard warts? There's got to be. You know? There's got to be. And uh, yeah, we know there have to be lawyers because like if Moni Myrtle can have a restraining order put on her, like that has to come from somewhere, <laughs> you know? Totally. So that's where Harry goes. Um, he's escorted by Mr. Weasley, who also works at the Ministry of Magic. Dumbledore defends him and Fudge is like chief prosecutor. And, you know, who's also in there is Professor Umbridge. The first time we see her before she goes to Hogwarts and there's just like immediate animosity. Yeah, she puts you sort of on edge from the start. Dumbledore steps in and basically says he defends Harry and says that those Dementors were there by no mistake because Dementors shouldn't be leaving Azkaban and they're under ministry control. And Umbridge sort of comes back with, well, if you're saying that this happened and they're under ministry control, you're basically saying there's some kind of conspiracy and Dumbledore comes back again with, okay, maybe conspiracy or Voldemort's actually back. Like, Cornelius, listen up, bro. I have such hatred for ignorance just in general. And Fudge and Umbridge are together the worst kind of ignorance. Just stubborn ignorance, uneducated ignorance, or actually worse, educated ignorance. I think that 
fudge is uneducated ignorance and umbridge is educated ignorance like she knows what she's doing she just wants to have things her way whereas fudge just doesn't have a clue yeah but they both believe voldemort's not back and it's just um you know refusal to see the world for what it is which is a bad place luckily harry gets off it's all fine and good but while we're on the subject of umbridge i think that's pretty much all we should be talking about for harry's next freak out number seven harry's biggest freak out in order of the phoenix is just our, our general catch-all about professor umbridge so all throughout the year she's the new defense against the dark arts teacher and she doesn't believe in practical magic she <laughs> only believes in theory reading from textbooks not teaching anything because in her mind why do you need to learn so harry represents everything she doesn't need um her students to learn which is of course useless but you know harry's stubborn harry has a mouth on him and so he talks back. It is the view of the ministry that a theoretical knowledge will be sufficient to get you through your examinations, which, after all, is what school is all about. And how's theory supposed to prepare us for what's out there? There is nothing out there, dear. Who do you imagine wants to attack children like yourself? Oh, I don't know. Maybe Lord Voldemort. Let me make this quite plain. You have been told that a certain dark wizard is at large once again. This is a lie. It's not a lie. I saw him. I fought Detention, him. Mr. Potter. So according to you, Cedric Diggory dropped dead of his own accord. Cedric Diggory's death was a tragic accident. It was murder. Voldemort killed him. You must know that. Enough! Enough. See me later, Mr. Potter. My office. <laughs> and lo and behold, Harry gets sent to his first of, like, nightly, truly nightly detentions. So many detentions that Angelina Johnson, the Quidditch captain, is just furious at Harry. <laughs> so mad. Umbridge's detention is famous. I mean, in the Harry Potter series, I don't know a single person who didn't go absolutely insane she invented her own quill which cuts words written into hands she makes harry hermione neville and draco go into the forbidden forest in the middle of the night with hagrid for like literally no reason she makes ron polish silver in the trophy room without magic once he crashes the car she makes harry help lockhart answer fan mail and then I think this was the shadiest thing she ever did. Neville kept forgetting the common room password, so she revoked his access to him, to all of them. Like, <laughs> I get Neville. you're teaching a lesson, but also, like... She presents herself as being one thing, sort of, like, sugary and sweet and lover of kittens and all that kind of stuff, right? Do you think, because she presents herself as one thing, but is actually another, which is pure evil, that she's maybe the worst kind of villain? Whereas, like, with Voldemort, we know what we're getting with him. Oh, yeah. But you know what? She doesn't pretend to be nice. It'd be one, I mean, she sounds nice, but she is aware and we are aware that the things she says are all hateful things. But yes, I understand what you mean. You there know is what I that mean? discrepancy between... Between what you see and what you get. Yes, very much so. You see pink and kittens and teacups and you don't get that. But it's not like she hides behind those things. They're sort of like the hilarious minority of what she is. The majority of what she is is this awful spirit and kind of the minority is the aesthetic, if that makes sense. Yeah, strange. no, for sure. Anyway, let's talk a little bit about what we know about Umbridge in the years since this book came out. J.K. Rowling has written actually a ton about her because she's so vile. 
Everyone hates her. We know that's true. But a little bit about her history. Do you know some of this? I know that she was loosely inspired by a teacher that J.K. Rowling had at a certain point. Umbridge, um, she was the daughter of a wizard and a muggle. She had a squib brother. And so kind of halfway through her childhood, she and her father, the wizard, split off from the brother and the muggle mother. She goes to school. Her father's a janitor at the ministry. But then the second she graduates, you know, she becomes an intern in the ministry, the improper use of magic office. And once she rises through the ranks, she sends her father off to retirement and quickly starts telling lies about him, denying he is anything but a Wizengamot member. Yeah, she wasn't impressed by his lack of ambition, how he didn't move up at the ministry on all those years that he was there. So she sort of rejects him and she rejects her background. She tells everybody she's a pureblood when she's not. Yeah. So I must not tell lies. Like, girl, look in that mirror, say your name three times and (laughs) turn to salt. So Umbridge, she's never married. Though she tried. Yeah, she tried. And apparently when she gets drunk, she just talks too much and says too many racist things, which I think is hilarious. So she's alone. She never enjoyed her time at school because she was overlooked for positions of responsibility. So when she returns to Hogwarts, she is terrible. Other fun facts. She is the only other person besides Voldemort to leave a physical scar on Harry. And uh, after the fall of Voldemort, she is put on trial and convicted of torture. Well Well deserved. deserved. So, Umbridge, we hate you. But you make a really great character. You're kind of a great villain. (laughs) I think one of the greatest villains ever written in literature. In 100 years, people are going to be putting her up there with, like, Captain Hook. Stephen King actually applauded her for being an excellent antagonist. Incredible antagonist. Yeah, yeah. But another person who she's terrible to, besides Harry, that brings us to number six on our list, is Professor... It's our bonus. It's Professor Trelawney. And McGonagall. And McGonagall. Bonus breakdown. You know, it's not just Harry who has some freakouts in this book and this movie. Bonus breakdown from Trelawney McGonagall. Basically, Umbridge makes herself the High Inquisitor. And in order to assert her control at Hogwarts, puts out all these educational decrees. I'm just going to read through some of these because these are insane. Yeah, they're nuts. No spell check quills. (laughs) That's fun. You can also take... My nightmare. You can also take Clippy from Microsoft Word with you. I don't need him either. (laughs) No sweets from unauthorized suppliers. No music during study hours. No broom flight, except Quidditch practice. Boys and girls can't be within six inches of each other. Then an update. Boys and girls can't be within eight inches of each other. Another update. Boys must keep their hands outside of their cloaks at all times. Oh, my God. Seamus Finnegan, I'm looking at you. I know what you did. Yeah, it would be Seamus. And other things like no literature by half-breeds or non-wizards. Then she does one about dismissal of teachers. And it's a whole ruckus when Umbridge decides that after all of these sort of check-ins with these teachers, observing people and saying, your results will come to you in 10 days, she fires Trelawney. She basically decides that she's not legit enough as a seer. Yeah. She like pushes her to predict something and she can't really. She can't predict anything. Yeah, because we all know, like, Trelawney, when she's right, she's so right. But it doesn't happen super often. Right. She's wrong, like, 99% yeah. of the time. Yeah. But what I do love is that when Umbridge does sack Trelawney, McGonagall is the one who defends her. Mm-hmm. Which, if you remember back to book three, McGonagall hates Trelawney. Hermione hates Trelawney. They yeah. all do. But I she s- is a member of the family. Whether or not they love her, she is a member of the family, a part of the fabric of Hogwarts. And... She's ousting her, and For luckily sure. Dumbledore steps in and uh, refuses to let her go. Yes, she does not teach divination anymore, but she's still allowed to inhabit the castle. Mm-hmm. She's not homeless. No, no. They really are a family. It's kind of beautiful. But I will say, and I want to talk about this a little later, 
Dumbledore gets mad. Dumbledore gets mad, and it's not it's not a good look for him. Dumbledore, may I remind you that under the terms of Educational Decree Number 23, as enacted by the Minister... You have the right to dismiss my teachers. You do not, however, have the authority to banish them from the grounds. That power remains with the headmaster. For now. So let's move on to uh, now our top five. Top five. Top five hairy, angsty moments. What is it, Molly? We're looking at Dumbledore's army and how Ron and Hermione were pushing Harry to sort of lead this organization of people trying to defend themselves, learn defense against the dark arts because Umbridge won't teach it. Harry does not take it that well because in his mind, everything he's ever done is by luck and by fluke and by other people's help. Harry is so humble, and I love that about him because as infuriating as it is, I see myself wanting to take this credit. He doesn't, and that's just an amazing thing that all throughout this crazy time, he he is so humble. But he's convinced to finally agree to teach kids dark arts when Hermione finally says the word Voldemort. She says Voldemort out loud, and then Harry is so calmed by it and so kind of galvanized that he says, okay, let's do it. Let's call a meeting. But then he has a second freak out. Once people sort of show up at the hogshead, he thinks they're there to hear from him. And really, they're just there to find out details about Cedric Diggory's death, which is so disgusting. Yeah. And that sort of brings up how Harry's been dealing with his friends all all this time. Seamus Finnegan is probably the best example of the most outspoken person who represents everyone else's opinions. Just like Justin Finch-Fletchley was the only one to kind of yeah. out him about the heir of Slytherin, Seamus here, his mom doesn't want him to hang out with Harry because of the Daily Prophet um, has written such crazy pieces about him. Even Percy Weasley wrote a letter to Ron saying, don't hang out with Harry. Yeah, so that Harry was really has- shady of Percy. But what's interesting to me is you mentioning JFF. Like, we've seen Harry have his haters before, and time and time again, Harry proves to people that he's not lying, and yet people keep thinking that he isn't telling the truth. Yeah, you're the heir of Slytherin. You put your name in the goblet. Exactly. You'd think at a certain point, it's like, hey, he keeps... It, it keeps being proven that he's right about these things. Like, like, why don't we trust this guy? Yeah. You know, but you know what? I guess people just don't want to believe it because it's scary, the stuff that he's bringing up. Yeah. He's kind of going through that same thing himself. Why aren't you believing me? How much more do I have to do? Why does nobody believe me? So that sucks for him. But luckily, Dumbledore's army turns it all around. Once people do show up um, and he, he does get it started, you know, there's that great montage in the film of, him teaching them all Expelliarmus and Reducto and the Patronus charm. You get to see everybody's Patronuses, yeah. which is fun. It's the really the thing that turns around this book for him. Harry's at his darkest before this. Not to say he doesn't sing to his darkest after Sirius dies. Spoiler. But, but yeah. once Dumbledore's army enters the picture, Harry sort of has a reason. He has something to get excited about, something sort of active it's the only good thing for him yeah. this year at Hogwarts. Really the only good thing. And it helps sort of unite him with people again because somebody we haven't talked about yet at all, um, Luna Lovegood, she's the one who brings up that if she were Voldemort, she would want him to feel isolated. And here through this army, he's not isolated. He has a group of people that he can count on and rely on. Yeah, Luna is is a big deal in this book. She is the only kind of main newcomer we meet who... It's crazy to me that Luna seems so integral to the story. And yet she's only introduced in book five. It feels like we've known her all this time. I think she just, though she's not there for a long time, she really teaches Harry 
a lot about death, about friendship. She's, about isolation, about being aloof and about being your own person and following your own voice. Luna's an incredible friend to Harry and the only person who calms him during this year. I love her. And Ivana Lynch nailed her. Ugh, amazing. Um, one other thing about Dumbledore's army, actually. Fascinatingly, there were 28 members. And we talked earlier in the show about how there were 28 pureblood families. I like to think that Dumbledore's army represents where the wizarding world is going to go, what kind of people are going to start their own families in the next generation after the Battle of Hogwarts. It's like the progressive answer to the sacred 28. Yeah. You know, if they're all sort of, they all really, they're not good people. They're they're very racist, aside from like the Weasleys and the Potters, who again are not in the 28. These 28 Dumbledore's army members, the ones who survived the Battle of Hogwarts at least, awkward, mm. they go on to kind of repopulate the world with new beautiful families that are half-bloods and muggle-born. One more person who we should highlight of Dumbledore's army's 28 is Cho Chang. She uh, oh, takes to. a special liking to Harry and thinks she he's does. a very good teacher. Yeah. Here is Harry's emotional freakout. You know, in a book with so many dramatic moments, life and death stakes, here is when Harry gets to actually sort of be a teenager and have a crush on somebody and they kiss yeah. and it's a little weird. Like, I would feel weird if I kissed someone and they started crying. Yeah. I don't think he's really kissed anyone as like a child. So Cho has her thing and she'll later portray the betray Dumbledore's army and you know it's kind of like a mini version of the Order of the Phoenix well or so everybody thinks yeah it's a result of some truth serum why are people so quick to believe that Cho ratted them out yeah I also want to talk about some of the other people in the DA because I think they're so underrated you've got the Patil sisters you've got Dean loyal Dean you got Lavender Brown loyal weird Lavender Neville Cho Luna the Creepy Brothers Ernie Hannah Justin and then my three favorite people in Harry Potter, truly, I need a whole show about them. Katie Bell, Alicia Spinnett, Angelina Johnson. The three power women, the first wives club of Hogwarts, and we don't know anything about these girls, and yet they are such good friends for Harry, they always believe him. They're his Gryffindor Quidditch teammates. Like, that is a bond. You know they have thrown back. They've had keggers at the end of the, the year. Oh, I can only imagine. So, you know, God love the DA. They're just friends of Harry's. None of them have met Voldemort. None of them have any reason to enter this dark world other than just believing that their good friend has seen all of this stuff and they think to themselves, yep, I believe him and I want him to lead me. Speaking Th of things that Harry has seen, that brings us to number four, which is when he has a dream about Mr. Weasley being attacked by Nagini, yeah. Voldemort's snake. Yeah, Harry's dreams have been pretty rough. A lot of long corridors and voices and hushed tones about things like not being done fast enough and get it Wormtail and all this weird stuff. But it's all sort of something he's just exploring. He doesn't really know it's Voldemort just yet. One night in December, he dreams he is a snake and he attacks Arthur Weasley. It's a little different movie and book here. I know in the book, McGonagall comes to get him in his dorm and then they go to Dumbledore's office and they all take a port key to Grimmauld Place. But in the movie... It's it's quite different, and that's why this is on the list of freakouts. Yeah. In the movie, Harry goes to Dumbledore's office, and he's explaining the situation, and then everybody kind of starts talking about it, and Harry just is losing it because Dumbledore... Won't look at him. Yeah, he won't look at him, and he's been ignoring him this whole year. Harry's been trying to get a hold of him and can't, and so he just yells at him, look at me, and it's just insane. Can you imagine yelling at a teacher like that? It's wild. I mean... 
And it's also so earned. You feel for Harry at this moment in the movie. You think, wow, I would have exploded far earlier than this. But um, everyone's t- caught off guard, and yet nobody scolds him because I think they I think all because realize they, what he's been going through. Yeah, they know that it's earned, and they, with Dumbledore in particular, he knows what he's putting Harry through. Yeah, and they've all been yelled at by Harry except Dumbledore. <laughs> Um, this is my moment when I wanted to say how annoying I think the casting of Michael Gambon was in this. I think every single Potter fan, I don't mean to speak for everyone, but I'm going to. Michael Gambon was the worst thing to happen to the Harry Potter movies. Richard Harris would have been an incredible Dumbledore, rest in peace. And Michael Gambon came along, bragged about how he never read the books because they're not the script and you can only go off the script apparently. He never read the books and instead his Dumbledore was not tender did not have a twinkle in his eye, was not warm, did not feel magical. His Dumbledore was angry and yelling. He yelled at Harry, did you put your name in the Goblet of Fire? He yelled at all the students watching Trelawney get sacked. Don't you all have studying to do? Sure, you could say he played him as a little more real of a person who is under stress sometimes and wants what's best for Harry, but he never got it right. Never, ever, ever got it right. I disagree with you. So you can't talk for all Potter fans. Oh, my God. You like Michael Gambon's Dumbledore? I do. I mean, but I like Richard Harris's Dumbledore as well. I just think they're different. And actually, at times, I wondered if Richard Harris's Dumbledore, because he is so tender and nice and magical and, like, almost kind of otherworldly, I agree that Michael Gambon's feels a lot more sort of in reality. I wondered if he how he would have carried those like Horcrux hunting scenes and all of that, you know? The great tragedy, aside from Richard Harris's death in general, is that we only got to see him in those first two movies when it was a storybook, candy-colored, Chris Columbus-directed world. I would have loved to have seen him at least, at least do Prisoner of Azkaban. And get a little darker. And get a little darker and see what he would have done. I do agree with you, though, that Michael Gambon yells a lot, and I think that's part of why it feels so deserved when Harry... Yells at him because it's like, like, you've been yelling at him this whole damn time. Do it. (laughs) Spill that tea. Yell at him. But I just, I don't know. I I think he does have those tender moments. I think at the end of this film in particular, when he starts talking to him about how, who's at fault for, as we said, Sirius's death, that is a nice heartfelt moment of honesty. But moving on from the yelling incident through this Dumbledore basically brings in Snape. Dumbledore, kindness aside, um, Harry does successfully um, save Arthur Weasley. The Order goes and saves him. And um, there's some nice moments at Grimmauld Place about Christmas time. And uh, it's really beautiful. And I just want to give a little bit of a shout out to Arthur Weasley, the character, because he is now in Harry's debt, so to speak. But Harry always owed him, in my opinion. Arthur was such an incredible character, great father figure mm-hmm. in a world where Harry actually has a lot of kind of father figures. Yes, Molly is the mother, where there's not many other women in his life aside from McGonagall. Arthur just kind of like faded into the pack and yet was always there for Harry, treated him like a son. Do you think that Arthur was more of a father figure to Harry than Sirius? No, never. I would never say that. Oh, okay. No, no, no. I just mean Arthur faded into the background but cared for him so much and never got the credit he deserved. I think he just kind of feels sort of like... If Harry were to have sort of a normal life, like let's say he were an orphan but not under these circumstances, 
you Arthur would, is you kind of like the average right, yeah. dad, you know, who Every man. would take you out for your birthday and like throw the ball around or whatever, yeah. that kind of thing. I love in Chamber of Secrets how Arthur takes Hermione's parents out for a drink at the Leaky Cauldron. That just says it all. His his son comes home with a best friend and he can't wait to meet her parents. Yeah. So love Arthur. He was actually supposed to die in this moment in book five. J.K. Rowling decided she couldn't do that because by killing off Arthur in this moment, one, you lose the serious black kind of drama but two she said quote by turning ron into half of harry in other words by turning ron into someone who had suffered the loss of one parent i was going to remove the weasleys as a refuge for harry and remove a lot of ron's humor because if you killed off ron's father he's going to shut down he's going to shut down and not just for one book he's going to be a different person no i think that's a really really good point So moving on to our third point, after Harry yells at Dumbledore, Dumbledore brings Snape in and wants Snape to teach Harry in the art of occlumency, which is basically stopping somebody from infiltrating your mind and seeing your thoughts and your memories. I hate this. It sounds so easy. It's like, clear your mind. Go blank, bro. Like, have you ever told somebody to calm down? You know what it does? It makes them not calm. Yeah, that's a little true. So Snape gets mad when he's trying to teach him occlumency. He's like, It appears that there is a connection between the Dark Lord's mind and your own. Whether he is as yet aware of this connection is for the moment unclear. Pray he remains ignorant. You mean if he knows about it, then he'll be able to read my mind? Read it. Control it. Unhinge it. In the past... It was often the Dark Lord's pleasure to invade the minds of his victims, creating visions designed to torture them into madness. Only after extracting the last exquisite ounce of agony, only when he had them literally begging for death, would he finally kill them. Used properly, the power of occlumency will help shield you from access or influence. In these lessons, I will attempt to penetrate your mind. You will attempt to resist. Prepare yourself. You know, occlumency is just a nightmare. It's interesting. Bellatrix actually teaches Draco this in book six, and he seems to do fine keeping Dumbledore's plan a secret. You know, the murder of Dumbledore secret. But meanwhile, Snape, God, Snape does everything. If Voldemort had never cursed the Defense Against the Dark Arts teacher job after he didn't get it by asking Dumbledore, Snape would have been a kick-ass DA teacher oh, for, for like sure. years. He knows he knows knows everything. But yeah, this backfires, of course, when it, Harry kind of rebounds, does a shield charm, and Snape's mind gets red. And what a sad but very telling moment. You basically see Snape getting bullied by James Potter and Sirius and the Marauders, and there's a few other kids around too, and it's really just like you get some insight into why Snape isn't very nice to Harry and that's just the tip of the iceberg. Well, yeah, he just he hates James. James Potter, sorry, hot take, not a good guy, never a good guy, and ass the entire time that he's at Hogwarts to Snape and others. And they always say like how you treat waiters is a real sign of how you respect anyone or how you treat anyone who can't do anything for you. James Potter treats everyone terribly who's not his friend or his crush. So... I'd I like to think, though, Snape. that he kind of that that was more of a school thing and he grew out of it because Lily's too sweet to be with somebody not so nice. Right. Well, I think Lily, I think once James had a kid, he decided I have to be better. I have to be a hero. I have to be, uh, you know, his friends idolized him. And I think 
James just realized once he became more mature that he had to be a better person for his family. I think that's kind of what Harry does. You know, he is a better person to everybody he meets. Everybody says that he's so much like his father with alliance of his mother. Mm -hmm. But he's nice to sort of the weirdos, like the Lunas and the Nevilles and all these sort of outside characters. Yeah. Yeah. So this was a great opportunity, though, to see a little bit of Snape, see why he hates Harry so much. And Occlumency proves to be useless because... Uh, well, I don't think it's useless. I think Harry just was not really taking yeah. this as seriously as he should have. Yeah. I'm, I mean, the next thing that happens is uh, our second biggest blow up, which is Harry gets a vision of Sirius, which turns out to be planted by Voldemort as a way to lure him into doing exactly what he does, which is try at all costs to get to the ministry and save him. And basically, it's a trap because the Death Eaters and Voldemort need Harry to retrieve the prophecy. Which yeah. is so before we get to that, Harry decides, okay, I'm going to go save him. So but how are you going to do it? They got to go through Umbridge. So they decide that flu powder through her fireplace is the best way to get to the ministry, um, only it's being watched. And we get this incredible sequence of finally justice against Umbridge. It's got some great elements to it. It's got Harry giving a warning to Snape that only he will know, and he tells the order about it. It's got Hermione improvising. And then it's got, listen, I don't want to talk about this stupid character, but Here I know you we go have again, to for Mark. a second. Grop. <laughs> like, whatever. If I never say grop again, I, I, I mean, I'm done. I'm not saying it again, but say who he is really quickly. He's a giant that Hagrid brought back to Hogwarts. Um, and then he gets sacked, basically. But the trio are looking after Grop. And when Hermione improvises, she takes Umbridge to Dumbledore's secret weapon, which is a trap, the trap being Grop. Right. And also the centaurs are really mad that Hagrid brought Grop in. And they've been they've been on edge about humans and threatening to attack all year long. So they specifically hate Umbridge when she gets in there, attacks them with ropes and all sorts of stuff. So Umbridge is carted away, claps, cheers for everybody. And then suddenly Neville, Ginny, and Luna show up, and Ron, and uh, they all fly Thestrals to the Ministry, which, which was... are the horses you can only see if you've seen death. So guess what? Half of them are flying on something they can't see. Guess what? Half of them will be able to see those after the end of this book <gasps> slash film. Oh, my God. I never thought of that. Yeah. Molly, that's know. dark. We're girl. here to bring the uh, revelations, guys. That is dark. Yeah. So they get to the Ministry of Magic, and they go down to the Department of Mysteries. A quick little lesson about the architecture of the Ministry of Magic. Ministry of Magic, as we came to know it, built in the 1700s, supposedly built around this place called the Death Chamber, which has a veil, this big stone archway that links the world of the living and the world of the dead. Supposedly it was there at the beginning of the ministry. It's kind of maybe the cornerstone around what you build this thing around, because like, I mean, truly, what are you going to do? Like, this is where we put the death stone. You know, like, what are you going to do? <laughs> it's like the ugly vase that, like, your mother-in-law gives you. Yeah. You don't know like, what to do with it. Like a, it was like a load-bearing death veil, you know? <laughs> so the Ministry of Magic has seven departments. Magical law enforcement, magical accidents and catastrophes, all sorts of things I wish we could get into, but we just do not have time. Nope. But maybe one day. And then there's the Department of Mysteries, which is actually fascinating. It is the place where... Ministry officials called unspeakables who can't talk about anything that they do because it's so top secret. They do research about the mysteries of the world, things like love and space and thought and time and death. 
as the kids arrive and are looking for sort of where they need to go, we get a little glimpse of some of these places. I mean, there's the brain room, which is a tank of floating brains. And it's interesting because you think, is this the closest we'll get to medical research? You know, I know, I know it's there's... It's true. It's a really untapped... There's St. Mungo's Hospital, yeah. which is a legit hospital. But yeah. It's but a... it's not something that's really explored throughout the yeah. series. This it's is... only lightly touched upon. The Department of Mysteries is NASA. It's JPL. It's the cool people who are doing 3D printing. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's like really yeah. crazy research into the big mysteries of life, um, which is just fascinating. And uh, one thing that we see here is the Hall of Prophecies. Every prophecy that has been made is there, labeled in a crystal ball, like some horrific bed and breakfast, with a tag <laughs> that says who it's about, who made it, and what date. I never understood, like, why, why were there so many prophecies? And also, who vetted these prophecies? Like, right. could, I, could I just be like, Molly, you're going to get Chipotle on Sunday. I like this prophecy. Keep going. <laughs> this is my every weekend, my <laughs> prophecy. Like, am I included? Like, does my crystal ball get shelved? Right. Or is know. it only, like, prophecies of significance? Yeah. You know? Knows? So they're in the Department of Mysteries, in the Hall of Prophecies, and they find out that it was a trap. And the second Harry grabs his prophecy, which he just happens to see, the Death Eaters descend. They were waiting for him. Only he can take the prophecy, supposedly. Only the people who the prophecy is about, so him or Voldemort. Right. And it was a trap because the Death Eaters are there now trying to get it. They do a good job fighting him. They destroy quite literally every other prophecy yeah. in the process. They, Yeah. I mean, I love this scene, A, because it's like action-packed, but B, you see sort of the real result of Dumbledore's army. You see people using all these spells that had happened and you realize the benefits of practical magic. (laughs) Um, Bridge, looking at you. So then they arrive in the death chamber, which is uh, that, that fun room with the veil of death. And the battle's not really going that well. Harry's actually about to surrender to Lucius Malfoy when suddenly the order shows up. Tonks, Kingsley, Lupin, Sirius... Everybody's there. Mm-hmm. The gang's all back together. Surprise. The battle... And it's literally a battle between light and dark. Yeah. yeah it's very <laughs> heavy handed. Yeah. But the battle wages on once more. And then um, the big oh. moment happens. I mean, there's, a, well, yeah, two things. One, there's the moment where Sirius says, nice shot, James, uh, which is heartbreaking. So heartbreaking. But then, and this is the killer, Bellatrix Lestrange, cousin to Sirius, bad egg, Kills her cousin in a very controversial move, book versus movie. Explain. In the movie, she just Avada Kedavra's him, and that's it. In the book, that's not what happens. In the book, Bellatrix uses a curse, kind of probably like a stun curse or something, and basically knocks him into the veil. So Sirius doesn't die from Avada Kedavra. Sirius dies because he accidentally falls through the veil into the world of the dead. In any case, it's kind of like a sucker punch. It comes out of nowhere. Yeah, it comes out of nowhere. And, I mean, Harry and Sirius had been bonding a lot. Sirius had even made a promise to Harry, when this is all over, we'll just be a normal family. And you know that this is a really real freakout because as Harry's, like, screaming and losing it, the sound goes off. Like, that's real. Lupin has to prevent him from going in because otherwise Harry, impulsive Harry, will run in thinking, oh, I don't care what this strange room is. I'm just going to go in. Yeah, he's holding him back and eventually Harry escapes and that's when he goes after Bellatrix. Yeah, and this is this freak out out number one. This is freak out number one, yeah. So Harry goes after Bellatrix. He's like in a rage. Bellatrix manages to escape, but... Just barely. Well, Harry could have, I mean, 
Harry truly could have gotten her. He tries to do the Cruciatus curse. Yeah, he does. But he can't muster enough actual hate in his heart. And that's when Voldemort shows up, tempting him to tap into that hatred. Yeah, can you believe Voldemort just throws her under the bus like that? Yeah. I mean, I I guess I can, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I can believe it, but it's just like, she's like one of your most loyal followers, dude. Anyway, so he's tempting him to tap into that hate. Harry doesn't, and then Dumbledore steps in. The only person Voldemort is afraid of. Or as the book chapter says, the only one he ever feared. They really are, I think, on an equal playing field. And Dumbledore is the only person who calls Voldemort Tom, as in Tom Riddle. He calls him by his real name. Because he knows him and he knows he tries to remind him, you're a human, you're a person under there. And yeah, Dumbledore and Voldemort duel. It's truly incredible in the movie. It's really an amazing It's like a water versus fire. No music. Elements coming together. And it's crazy and it's intense. And also shout out to Voldemort's biceps, which get a real nice shot in the film. Shout out to Voldemort's <laughs> biceps. Oh, my God. I just threw up in my mouth. Do you know the shot I'm talking about, though? I, They're on display. Not not really. I Honestly, I, I like, oof. What is a Voldemort biceps? Does that. Voldemort have a No, don't cut that. Does Voldemort have a six-pack that I don't know about? And I also don't want to know about? Anyway, so the battle ends. Harry defeats Voldemort with love. <laughs> and the interesting thing well, is that finally we get a moment of fudge showing up. Also noteworthy in the scene, though, after the battle ends, Voldemort turns into kind of like this sand, I guess, this other matter, and he enters Harry and like possesses him. And that's when you see this literal battle within Harry, like not just his conscious, but he's actually trying to fight the evil out of him. Yeah, he's trying to possess Harry. Yeah. Harry drives him out through love, the one thing Voldemort never had. He even says that he feels sorry for Voldemort, which I think is a testament to how brave and courageous and good Harry actually is like Sirius said he was when he was really put to the test he went to the light not the dark so Harry successfully fends him off and Voldemort sticks around for just a second just long enough for Cornelius Fudge himself to see him and thus he's back and that that's now kind he's of, like really back because at four now he's li- he, he was four, back he and now he's back, backer and now everybody believes <laughs> Harry yeah Totally. So, English language. <laughs> so, you know, at the end, you know, we don't see much of this at the end of the movie. But in the book, there's some wrap up. Dumbledore apologizes to Harry. Um, he tells him about the prophecy, which, you know, said. Neither some... can live while the other survives. One of them is going to have to kill the other. Yeah. So that's why it was kind of a big deal. There was also all these theories that it could have been Neville, but um, it wasn't Neville. <laughs> Harry's think, a half-blood. Neville's a pure-blood. It was not. Ha- it was not Neville. I think what's interesting about this wrap-up too is Dumbledore basically says that he was trying to spare Harry, and little by little, as the series continues, we see sort of the extent of him sparing him. You know, well, and he stopped sparing him as much. I mean, the second he asks Harry to um, go help him get the ring, he even says, "I'm once again, I must ask too much of you." It's all about the waning of protection and everyone else realizing that Harry is a man, not a boy anymore. He's learning it and they're learning it too, all the adults in his life. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that ends this book. Harry keeps a mirror that Sirius gave him, the two-way mirror they used to talk, and that's that's just kind of heartbreaking. Honestly, I'm still upset. (laughs) Like, I feel like I have taken on all of Harry's feels that he had. Like, he managed to sort of get over them, right? I'm just beginning my, like, emo process. Totally. Well, that's a great opportunity to segue (laughs) us into truly the person who brought out the hatred in all of us. 
Um, this week's interview is truly a high point in my Harry Potter existence. And Molly, I'm sure it's true for you as well. Yeah, I echo that for sure. Imelda Staunton, the incomparable award-winning actress of stage and screen, has joined us on EW's Humble Binge to talk about Professor Umbridge. We're so excited to uh, to chat with you. Thank you so much for giving us a call. Um, this is quite an honor because um, you are one of the greatest villains uh, we have ever seen, I think. <laughs> Jolly good. <laughs> well, let me let me start and let me ask you: Do you ever find yourself thinking of Dolores Umbridge? I mean, these films ended years ago. Do you ever catch yourself just thinking about her? Well, only because people keep bloody well writing to me about it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they're still you know because I thought, oh well, the fan mail will stop. Of course, oh no, not at all. So um, I still get people, you know, and it's it's great that it's made such an impression. Um, and I'm very grateful for that, because also I'm very grateful that it was actually such a serious role mm-hmm. um, and such a, you know, a light on those sort of people who have power, who shouldn't have power, who abuse that power, and who shouldn't, certainly shouldn't be let anywhere near children. So uh, I quite like that um, there was a focus on that. Yeah. Well, you know, a lot of actors talk about having to sympathize with their character in order to understand them and play them well. So I suppose on a very mm. binary level, given all that she has done and, and what you knew going into the role, d- do you like her? Did you ever find sympathy in her? Oh, no, I didn't have any sympathy at all. I don't have to have, I don't have, to have sympathy at all. Not in the slightest. <laughs> I think she's a bloody monster. Um, and to be played as such, uh, I don't need to understand what she does but on a from a character point of view she believes she's doing the absolute best for that school yet again i have embraced a completely and utterly this you know deluded woman can you expand then though on how you sort of unpacked her evil how did you get into her headspace and bring her to life well, a lot of it, I have to say, was to do with David Yates, our director, who then went on to direct every one of the films from then on. And we looked at it, you know, the, the, you, you have the script and that's what you go from. Yes, there's the book, but you, you have the script and you have to, you, he sort of made it very clear to me. He said, look, you know, this, this woman is into ethnic cleansing. Mm-hmm. And that's quite political. And he said, that's what this is. You know, the pure bloods and all that. You thought, Christ, of course that's what it is. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it became very serious. So so that's when you go, right, and I'm not just a, a lady in a, in, in a very nice array of pink outfits. Uh, this is dressed up. This is madness and cruelty dressed up. And... Um, and uh, and of course, it, you know, of course, it's fascinating to play because, you, yes, you, yes, you want to get your head around it, but you also want to... You know, I don't really want to get my head around that, but I, <laughs> I want to, um, I want to make sure that I serve the purpose in this story. Sure. And um, it was very difficult. I, you know, and I, I loved doing it, but I have to say, the most difficult scene to do, which did leave me feeling pretty bad for a couple of days, was actually the scene where I make him, you know, do the do the lines, and it happens in his hand. And I thought, you know, that touched into something 
that you think, gosh, we're all capable of great cruelty. And that tapped into, I thought, I hate, it was a horrible, horrible feeling. Really? How, uh, how long did you have oh. to shoot that scene for? I think it was a day. Mm-hmm. And that, that <clears throat> stuck with you? And, uh, yeah, and so it was, yeah, sorry, I- I'll shut up, go on. No, 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 I'm, I, I love, I, I, we wanted to know about that scene because, you know, you, I mean, I, I know I've read interviews with you before, you're a mother yourself, you have a child near Daniel Radcliffe's age, and so I wonder if there's a part of you that just can't, get over the villainy of the, of this this scene what was uh take us inside the shooting of that yeah it was um you know and i didn't i i didn't sort of i didn't gear myself up i didn't think oh this is a difficult scene i thought well this is just another scene of, of the, but actually it you're absolutely right of course it did tap into could you do that to another human being and the line saying you know you know this is doing you good those villains and those people who are are convincing themselves as well as the victim that this is really good for you. Honest, it really, really is. She's not sort of, you know, twirling her moustache and saying, mwahahaha. It's it's (laughs) absolute and utter belief that actually it is going to help. And that's, of course, so much more frightening. Mm -hmm. Now, would you say that Umbridge is as bad as Voldemort or worse? I mean, she's working in a way that really connects with people being with the ministry. And Rowling herself has said that she thinks that her actions are as, quote, reprehensible as Lord Voldemort's unvarnished espousal of evil. Totally. It's just, it's just you know, it's the same thing dressed up differently. Sure. You yeah. know, we're, we're, in, we're, in diff- we're in different outfits. And, of course, my, in a way, Voldemort, of course, he, you know, he looks frightening. She doesn't look frightening, and that's what makes it more shocking. Mm-hmm. Totally, you expect him to be a you expect him to be a bad guy, so he looks so horrible. You know? <laughs> um, but I mean, to, to have this seemingly bit of a silly, kind woman turning into you know being someone with such a dark, utterly black, cold, heartless centre is. Um, I think is is more frightening. Sure. Because also children are made to trust people, you know, and who wouldn't trust that lady who's very keen that everyone is having a good time and that everyone... But also what I loathed about it is the whole thing about, you know, there's a line about exams are really all that matter. (laughs) I bloody hate that. I hate that. You know, the whole education system now is just success, 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 exams, exams, exams. Nothing to do with allowing children's minds to explore and learn she wants them you know, it's literally she wants them to do what they what she says end of story you just repeat 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 numbing the mind yeah did you ever um consider sort of a backstory for her to flesh her out i mean figuring out how this woman does get to this point where you know she, we were all children once so how does a person become like that did you ever talk to joanne rowling about that no, no, no. No, I'm also, uh, you know, for me, it's pretty clear in the book and it's pretty clear in the script. So I don't have to do that much backstory because you don't say, oh, she was probably quite unhappy. I don't care what she was. She's a monster. Mm-hmm. So um, I, I, also, I also believe that those people, are, of course, are incredibly weak. Mm-hmm. Um, as people who are given a little bit of power and therefore they abuse it because actually they cannot flesh it out 
with reason, with diplomacy, with understanding, with soul. They can't. So she latches onto the ministry, latches onto all the, um, you know, and, and worships at, at the, the, the court of, you know, the ministry. Um, so I think weakness and ignorance are um, pretty lethal weapons to, to, to be operating from. Sure. Yeah. And Imelda, you'd worked with a lot of the actors who appeared in the Potter films, and we've heard stories, of course, of the kids all hanging out together on these sets, but what was it like hanging out with the adults? How did you guys spend your time in between takes? And who were you closest with? Well, right, well, for a start, there wasn't much time in between because, of course, the kids can only film for three hours a day. So it was pretty full on. So it wasn't like days and days of hanging around like you do on most films. It was so beautifully structured the days and they looked after the kids so well but I mean you know you have great days me and Robbie Coltrane sitting in that hut wittering on about things you know you that that's lovely and of course I've known dear wonderful departed Alan Rickman from drama school we were there at the same time at RADA um mm. and you know and then you know you, you work with the the idol that is Maggie Smith and you sort of have to pinch yourself and think, blimey, I'm <laughs> in here amongst this lot. And, and that's what felt great. And it also felt great that there we were on my Potter, which was number five, and they were still, you know, making the scripts better and better and trying to keep always the integrity of the books and the stories. And, you know, I don't count myself in that company, but you, you look at that casting of all the grown-ups, if you like, and you think, gosh, well, that's, I think the top draw and I'm in it and I can't quite believe it. So um, it was, it was pretty special and, and also an enormous amount of respect for the kids. I have to say with Dan and uh, uh, Rupert and Emma, you know, God, they work bloody hard. All of them, <laughs> all of them, Tom Felton. Uh, and, you know, I did a short film with Tom after, I mean, they worked really hard because not only were they doing 10 years of that film, they were doing 10 years of their education. And they did it with such a plum. They all got all their exams, as if I care. But they <laughs> did it. Um, don't say I said that, obviously, but you will. Um, but, but, you know, I, I, I applauded the, the producers and the way the whole thing was run because I don't think anyone came out of there with scars. Sure. Oh, well, that's a great, I mean, that's a great metaphor. And also that leads me into this next question is what was your last day filming Potter like do you recall that very uh that very last rap for you I don't the last day I think I no it um yeah I can't remember because I think I was doing something else in Ireland and I had to come back for two days there was a reshoot and because with all those you know the um special effects you suddenly find you've got to come back and just, you know they just look at your hand in a shot or something you know it's never sort of a great big emotional scene that you finish on um but I was sad to leave because it had been it was almost a year for me on that. Um, and, you know, and I got to know Dan. Well, I'd known Dan before. I'd done um, on the BBC, actually with Maggie Smith, David Copperfield, where Dan had played the young David Copperfield. Mm. Uh, so we'd known each other before he did Potter. So I've known him since. And uh, so and I was so impressed with him. And, yeah, it was sad to say goodbye to it. Was there, um, I, you know, you mentioned earlier all of these other incredible actors playing the, the adults and that you were in that drawer. Um, were you ever 
did you ever fancy yourself playing another role? Not to not to not play Umbridge, but who else? Which other character would you have liked to go at? Well, actually, I have to say I, I was asked a couple of times to be in it, but I didn't want to. <laughs> but I didn't. I didn't want to do two days on it. You know, I thought no, I'd like to. I want to be in it, mm-hmm. really in it, or not at all. So, and I never thought I would be in it. And I have to say, really. It was the success of Vera Drake with Mike Lee that made it possible for me to be, you know, slightly have a slightly higher profile. Mm-hmm. So that's why, really, I think they were were able to to, to cast me. I flatter myself that I that they would have put me in it uh, without Vera Drake, but I don't think they could have because I wouldn't have been high profile enough. Um, so I mean, how clever of me in, with hindsight, ha ha. <laughs> Uh, you know, gosh, I did say no, and it bloody well paid off, which was a surprise. Yeah, totally. Now you get you get to be the greatest villain in in I mean, just one of the greatest villains in Potter history. And getting back to Potter a little bit, you know, at the end of the series, Umbridge is sentenced to Azkaban for her crimes. How do you think she did in Azkaban? Could she hold her own, or or was she just completely terrified? I think a, a combination of both. Because, yes, I love seeing her terrified, but I think, think she'll get very, very cross in Azkaban. <laughs> and I think she will, yeah, she'll be very cross. She'll shout at a lot of people and get absolutely nowhere. <laughs> and I wonder how long it will take for her to be worn down by that. I think it'll take a pretty long time. Yeah, I love it. Well, I, I would love to see her worn down. I would love to see her pay a little bit for, <laughs> pay a little bit for the actions. Uh, Imelda, our last question, let me ask you, does the color pink trigger you now <laughs> well, I, <don't, laughs> um, I, I, I was never a big pink wearing uh, a person before uh, I certainly am not now um, <laughs> but I have to say I can't tell you how much I enjoyed uh, the process of getting those outfits together I loved them I loved the design I loved wearing them they gave me such I mean, to have, when I did say to the designer, I said, I want a fluffy suit of armor. (laughs) Wow. That's a great, that's a great phrase. Yeah. I wanted there to be a little film of that, because some of her car, her jumpers, a film of something so soft, like almost like a little halo around her body, this softness, like uh, Angora, this beautiful, you know, with just a, a hard steel inside. Because I thought, if we have any angles in these outfits, there's going to be hard edges. I want no. I want it to be soft, 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 like a, like a marshmallow. Well, Amelda, thank you so much. This has been amazing. Um, do you have any lingering thoughts about Potter you want to share with us? Well, apart from feeling very proud to be part of it, and also to be um, what it's done for children reading, and for these films to be part of this legacy. I mean, you know, there's never been anything like it in my lifetime or in my parents' life. There's never been a franchise like this. And to have something that is about good and evil, to have something that good does conquer and that good isn't wet, that goodness has strength. Hmm. Right. right. That sounds very Gryffindor of you. Yeah. Thank you. you. Thank you. Are you a Gryffindor? 
I can't tell you. I'd have to kill you. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. All right. Well, on that note, thank you so much. This is such an honor. We're, <laughs> we're terrified. I feel like we just had detention, but uh, it was the best detention we've ever had. Thank you so much for joining us today. <laughs> You're very, very welcome. Thank you. All right. You take care. Have a, have a great one. Thanks so much, Melda. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye-bye. Well, that's it for Order of the Phoenix. That was a lot. It was it was a big week, but uh, thanks for bearing with us, and thanks for bearing with Harry during his all caps freakouts. We're happy to report there are no such all caps moments. Well, there might be one in in the next one. Definitely not as many. We're not going to do ten of them. Thanks for listening. Subscribe on iTunes. Share us with your friends. Stick around for next week because uh, we've got another really amazing actor guest to join us. And um, all I'll say is that. This character was mentioned on this week's podcast. Yeah, I think that's a good hint. I don't want to say any more. Great hint, if I do say so myself. Thanks so much, guys. See you next week. See ya.